time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Silverman, thanks for tuning into the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. And this is the place where we're going to talk about bringing strings closer to our popular music culture and building that bridge. That's what this is all about. And we do that, I think, through grooving and rhythm playing. Uh, that's really where we connect with popular culture. And on today's podcast, I am so thrilled to be welcoming my good friend Mimi Rabson, who I have have just been in awe of the amazing teaching that she's doing up at Berkeley College of Music, where she's a professor. Uh, she is a, an amazing composer as well as a player. She's the first prize winner of the Massachusetts Cultural Council Fellowship in Composition. Her uh, articles are frequently in the pages of Strings Magazine, and her compositions and arrangements are published by String Letter Press, distributed by Hal Leonard. Um, she's got a bunch of great books. There's a new one that's not out yet, but it's coming out that's going to be really, I think, life-changing for a lot of listeners of this podcast. Uh, it's called Berkeley Arpeggios, Chords and Etudes for the Violin. She's also got Arranging for Strings, which was uh, out in 2018 on Hal Leonard Berkeley Press. Uh, the Berkeley Practice Method, Get Your Band Together, that she wrote with Matt Glazer, also from Berkeley. And this is the first ever method that teaches you to play in a rock band. How about that, string players? Uh, but it's not just me. She's got a lot of fans. Yehudi Menuhin said, quote, truly original and marvelous. I would love to have Yehudi Menuhin say that about me. WGBH says Mimi Rapson is a music powerhouse. She does it all as a musician. And this is my favorite one, Mimi. I love this. Bode Radio said, aggressively <laughs> eclectic and a master of every style she touches. <laughs> That's wonderful. What does that mean to you, aggressively eclectic? I don't know. I've never been accused of being, you know, a shrinking violet. <laughs> I say what's on my mind and get myself in a lot of trouble frequently. So I guess my playing is the same way. <laughs> That's awesome. You are a founding member of so many groups. You founded the Klezmer Conservatory Band, uh, Brio, which is this wonderful uh, Berkeley, really eclectic orchestra. There's the eclectic thing again. Uh, this wonderful uh, group of uh, for high school students uh, and I guess Berkeley students as well, or is it just? It's designed. It's designed for high school kids. Anybody can participate that wants to. It's free. It's available to anybody. Um, I've had a fair number of adults participate. Uh, often, adults who are professionals, um, teachers, people who did play music in high school but haven't gotten back to it for a while yeah. and wanted, uh, you know, a friendly way to participate. Yeah. So the college kids have, uh, there's another ensemble like this for the college kids who are, you know, paying right. tuition and, <laughs> and all that. But yeah, this is a wonderful group. I had the opportunity to visit with you guys one time and 
You are the leader of the Strings Theory Trio, which is a really cool synthesis of classical chamber music and directed improvisation. The co-leader of Triarchy, a power trio with violin and electric tuba and drums, which is a really cool thing because that's kind of an Eastern yeah. <laughs> European thing to use the tuba in a very uh, active way on uh, a lot of the... Um, Gypsy bands and stuff like that. Uh, some wonderful stuff. Yeah. And uh, also R.E.S.Q., the really eclectic string quartet. You are aggressively eclectic. I can see that. I can see where yeah. that came from. <laughs> <laughs> I When I started the really eclectic string quartet a long time ago, uh, I was hunting around for a name, and I thought uh, esoteric was the first word that came into my mind. But then a friend of mine pointed out that esoteric means something that only a very few people understand, that eclectic would be a better word. So so ah, same acronym worked out very well. <laughs> and uh, Mimi's appeared on a Prairie Home Companion several times, Avery Fisher Hall, Lincoln Center Out of Doors, Wolf Trap, The Man Center, Place des Arts in Montreal, and many other world-class venues. She's a sought-after clinician, taught at Mark O'Connor camps, asked, uh, she's a professor at Berkeley. And I am so happy to welcome you here to my podcast. I'm honored that you're here. Oh, I am honored and thrilled, Tracy. I'm such a big fan of yours and all the incredible work that you've done and the the, the styles that you have aggressively mastered, maybe not aggressively, <laughs> maybe nicely, <laughs> maybe positively mastered. Anyway, uh, it's just I'm thrilled to be here and I feel honored to be in such great company with all the other guests you've had and are going to be having. So thank you very much for asking me. You bet you bet and i want to dig right into how you do and how you explain what you do um and so we're going to just jump right into our groove hacker if that's cool you want to do that Great. Sure. um you've got a, a um a james brown tune i think that you were thinking of doing right pass the yeah peas. there's you know there's this tune called pass the peas that was a big hit for james brown many i'm sure you know many of his big hits um, I think this one was such a big hit that at one point, one of the guys in the band said, oh my God, if I never play that tune again, it will be too soon. <laughs> but you'll see for, uh, right away why it was such a big hit. I'm just going to play a moment of it for you here. Is that Perfect. a good time to do Yeah. Yep. The, the head of that tune. Right. Simple, singable, but so funky. Yeah. And uh, I've always, I mean, it's a great tune. It's a, there's a reason it was a hit, you know? Um, and uh, as I kind of delved into this, my process for doing this is to, if I find a tune that catches my ear, I immediately throw into the amazing Slow Downer, which I can't, the mo greatest app. Yeah in the universe. I use it every yeah. day. Thank you, Roni Music, for making the music slow downer. <laughs> Love you. Can't live without you. Um, I throw it in the slow downer and I slow it down as, you know, as much as I can and try to hear what everybody is doing. And the thing I notice about this tune and this style of music that is different than the classical music that I came up with is all of the space 
that comes between those notes. So yeah. I'm going to just slow it down here a little bit so you can hear what I'm saying. You're going to hear that melody again. Probably can sing it by now. But up, but up, but up. But I want you to hear how much space there is between those notes. It's not da 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 da. It's but up, but up, but up. Listen for the space. That's what's really important. That space in there that makes it funky, I think. It's the end of the note. Yeah. As string players, we spend so much time thinking about the beginning of our note. And we do think about the end of the note, but the, the answer there is always let it ring forever. It should just keep ringing and be beautiful. And you know, your instrument is designed to ring even though it, you're not actually playing that note anymore. You vibrato a little bit to keep it vibrating. We play things in sharp keys because they have we have all sympathetic strings, which will keep ringing and ringing and ringing forever. And that's so beautiful and wonderful, of course. Yeah, that's fabulous. Very... But I think if you want to play funk, you've got to do the opposite. <laughs> you've got to yep. make a short ending to all of your notes. That's the difference. So here's that melody again. If, I'm going to play it as if I were an orchestra. <laughs> So I really kind of want to keep it ringing. And that sounds funny, right? That's silly and funny. <laughs> That's great. I, I love doing the classical version of James Brown. It's always Classical James Brown. Yeah. I mean, if I, this is the problem. You know, if I write it on a piece of paper and ask someone to play it who has classical training, that's, that's what I would do, you know. Exactly. But really what they're doing is closer to this. And the only difference is, well, I'm not using any vibrato because I don't use a vibrato. And I'm keeping my bow on the string and I'm trying to dampen the strings as much as possible. So I've kind of between my left hand and my bow, keep my bow on the string, my left hand dampening the strings, I'm keeping those notes nice and short. Yes, exactly. Kind of the way horn players do. They're really focused on the releases because sometimes there's like a, you know, a crescendo and a sharp release or as a section they have to have those cutoffs. But I want to uh, just, just take a quick second and show us uh, or tell us how you are um, dampening that with your left hand, how you're like the release of the fingers and how that shortens the notes as well. Yeah, beautifully said, Tracy. So usually when you're playing classical music, you know your finger is on the string, on the fingerboard as much as possible to get the most possible ring. But as you just pointed out so beautifully, if you lift it just a tiny bit, there's my finger on the fingerboard, nice and solid. But if I lift it a little bit, if, just by lifting, my finger's still touching the string. Right, on a close just, note. I've lifted my finger just a little bit so that now the string isn't ringing anymore. That's, that's part of it. So left hand is doing that, and even on the open string. Okay, well, I had an open string there, so I've got to use my left hand to right. just All dampen. that dampening, yep. And you can also use your bow to do a little bit of that. If I keep my bow on the string, yep. instead of... Yep. If, I, if I keep my bow on the string... <clears throat> it will also make a nice, clean, crisp ending to the, to yeah. the note. Yeah, and, and these are all techniques that, you know, I, I spent four years at Juilliard, and nobody ever told me to take my fingers off the strings. Right. That was, you know, it was never discussed. Um, if there's a short note, that, that articulation is, was done with the bow. Uh, and so, so it's a, a technique which is very useful, uh, even in classical music, I, I would think, 
you know, there are applications where you would want to tighten up a note that way. But uh, so, so this is kind of a new technique for classical players, this whole idea of dampening constantly with the left hand in an active way. Um, and, uh, and not only that, but the, the sound that you're producing, the, that tone, that no vibrato, very short kind of guttural attack and release, very much like the tonguing of a horn, whether it's a trumpet or a trombone or a sax, um, it is something that I think a lot of classical players will intuitively, because of years of training, go, oh, that's ugly. I can't make that sound. My teachers told me, you know, beautiful, always beauty. You know, it's like the, the classical violin thing is all about celebrating gorgeous tone and beauty. And, and so classical players are going to think, look at this and go, now, why would I want to sound that way? So, so <laughs> tell them why you want to sound that way, why it's important. Well, I, this, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I think, Tracy. And uh, I, so true. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> you can have to cut this rules. next sentence out. I, I, it's going to be hard to talk about this without <laughs> getting super angry. Okay, don't use that. <laughs> no, go ahead. You're aggressively <laughs> no, no, eclectic, no. so I, go I'm, aggress I'm already in the aggressive point. <laughs> I, I just want to say, for I'm going to interrupt you very quickly just to say, for anybody who knows Mimi personally, they will know that calling her aggressive about anything is, is so far from her oh. wheelhouse. But anyway, anyway, go. I didn't That's mean to very, it's all a big cover-up, you know, on the inside. I'm <laughs> jumping up and down and pounding my fists and stomping my feet. <laughs> Um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. For somehow, we have been, we have, <laughs> what's the right way to say this? I don't want to say brainwashed. Uh, we mm -hmm. have learned, we've been taught what beauty is as string yeah. players without mm -hmm. any of our own, without our own beholding. We've been given something that is, that is beautiful in its own right, and we've told, been told that this is the only thing that's beautiful. And, I mean, to me, this past the piece, I mean, that's what I listen to, <laughs> you know. I think yeah. that's incredibly beautiful. Um, also, I was going to save this for the second part. There's one more thing I want to say about past the piece. Can I just say one thing, then yes, we'll come yes. back to this? Yeah. Okay. All right, so I just want to groove hack one more thing, which is um, I mentioned that when I get a tune that I, has got my attention, I have to pay attention to it. I've got, I throw it in the slowdown, or I slow it down as much as I can. The first thing I do is learn the bass line. The melody, yes. you know, you don't have, the melody will come, you can sing the melody, and of course you're going to want to improvise, but the bass player is going to be constant. The bass line will be constant even while you're improvising. So I try to get to the bass line first. I find with my students that that is very, very challenging. Even the cellists have trouble hearing that bass line. I'm not sure if it's, uh, the, it's just lower mm -hmm. pitches than they're used to paying attention to, or just they're just overwhelmed by the melody, which is what most of the time we're, we do or want to do as string players. But I find that that's very, very difficult and challenging. But this bass line is great. We've got to take one minute to go over what's going on in this bass line because it will emphasize this idea of the technique we've been talking about. Um, so let's, I'm going to play it again at this super slow speed and see if you can check out the bass line this time. All right, just to help you along with that, this is what he's doing. I'll do it a little faster. For violist yep. or cellist, 
right, so that's what's happening. Let me just do it a little. Whoops. Yep. That's the bass line and the drum backbeat right there. Yes, it is. And bass players and drummers work together, you know, so it's really a, a beautiful thing. Here it is full speed. And again, if I were to write that down on a piece of paper, it would be... <laughs> and there, you can hear the difference. So all I'm doing is, uh, as Tracy mentioned, as you mentioned, I'm lifting my finger to stop the resonance. I'm using my left hand a little bit to dampen it, and I'm using my bow. And I'm throwing in a little chop, too, for fun. Here it is. Mm -hmm. Listen, just 10 more seconds. Five, yep. One more second. Mm -hmm. So that's how those two things work together. Um, yep. Yeah, so it's all about that. Do you remember this word from uh, from my school days? Hocket. Did you oh, ever get yes. that one? Hocket. Yes. I could, that's not even in the dictionary anymore. But it's such a beautiful description of what's going on there. One yeah. person is playing one set of rhythms, another person playing another set of rhythms, and somehow they come together in this magical, you know, yeah. uh, longer rhythm. Anyway, that's what goes on in a lot of that music: is that the bass and drums, even between them, are doing this nice hocket. And then you get a nice rhythmic melody like the one in Pass the Peas, and then they fits together. It's I think of it as uh, sort of the inside of a fancy watch where everything there are all these gears that are different sizes, and they fit together just perfectly. They come around, the tines meet exactly yep. where they're supposed to. It's a beautiful yeah. thing, and beautiful thing. Yes, and the the guiding uh, principle, the the unifying force the gravitational force that's pulling all of that together and keeping it all lined up on a grid is the subdivision, right? The fact that there's a chick -a -chick -a -chick -a -chick -a -chick behind everything, that everything is locking into, even if we don't hear it, even if it's implied most of the time. Um, but let's listen, listen one more time to that, if you don't mind playing, and let's listen to the drum. Let's, let's see if we can hear that I call it the groove on, the smallest particle of the groove, right? Let's see if we can hear that subdivision in the hi-hat, I think is where it is, right? Chica, chica, chica. I just love that. You know, I'm playing one one simple rhythm for me to play. You're playing a rhythm that's simple for you to play. The other guy is playing some... But when they come together, it's this incredible mash, and you just can't not dance to it. You have yep. to dance to it, the positive <laughs> version. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So, so what that hi-hat is doing is really kind of interesting because there is a lot of implied rhythm. So this is, uh, I'm going to sort of simplify it. It's kind of like... With a heavy swing, right? So yes, it's not... It's a really hard swing, which is what makes that funk and hip-hop stuff later, because this is all the precursors of, of hip-hop right there um, from the 60s, James Brown, um, and how that implied subdivision of, of the grid. And in this case, you know, I, I, I talk about the grid a lot as being this sort of, you know, you think of it as a graph paper, right? Everything has to, you know, line up with those, with those um, uh, subdivisions of the beat. But when the subdivision is is swung like this, 
you know, you're going to have you're not going to have so that's the grid is the grid is a swung grid. Yeah. And uh, that's a great point. And uh, that swung grid, there are so many of them, you know, every yeah. player has sort of a different sense of his swing or her swing. And there, that, as you said, has changed so much over the decades. Now there's, well, I've just become aware of something called the drunken beat, where it's just so far, so far behind what everybody yep. else is doing. And it's just the most fantastic sound. Yes. Yeah, and I, yeah, I love and, that. Yeah, and, and the difference within a band or within an arrangement of swing and not swing is really cool. And this is so true of, of bebop jazz, where you have a drummer who's swinging really hard. And you have a horn player who's playing straight, right? And this is a real, uh, uh, something that string players need to be aware of, because I can't tell you how many string players um, I hear playing jazz with a super hard swing. Right, that kind of thing. Yeah. When really the horn players don't do it, the drummer does it. The horn yeah. players go, they're playing pretty straight, especially the faster it gets. It just all evens out. But the drummer's swinging it hard. And that that tension between the swing and the not swing, something that a lot of um, recent beat um, producers have been really exploiting, where they'll have a groove that has... Um, a hi-hat that's intentionally behind the beat or something like that. That's exactly what you were talking about, that drunken beat. Um, it almost doesn't line up, but that tension yeah. is makes our body move in a different way. Yeah, it's all about that tension. I completely agree. Um, that works the other way, too. Like, I, uh, I've i been listening to Eddie Harris's Cold Duck Time lately, which is a, the drummer is playing straight, actually. Ba-ba-dee-ba-boo-boo-boo-beat-up is the bass line. Uh-huh. And the horn players are swinging their asses off, like, way the behind the beat. Straight. Yeah. Uh, should I play that? Would it be helpful to play that? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Let's hear just that. Just give uh, me a second. Our drummer's totally straight. It's kind of what happens when you put uh, bebop players in a Latin context. Yes, and they're right. They're so used to swinging, and they've got that behind the beat kind of feel. Yeah. Uh, and then you you marry that with a very on top of the beat Latin kind of groove. Yeah. It's an interesting tension. And then there's this. So you know, um, you were talking about uh, students or people that you hear aggressively uh, swinging. And they, uh, and you know, saying let the drummer do it. You play the eighth notes more. That the soloist you're usually playing a little bit straighter eighth notes. I think um, uh, Matt Glazer is actually the one that turned me on to this idea. I think part of the reason that we have trouble swing, we violin players and people with a bow have trouble swinging, is because we are binary. <laughs> I mean, oh, I yep. can't say that anymore. Down and up on the bow is what I mean. Yes. Yep. So if you're going to play this many notes down, you've got to play this many notes up. And Matt Glazer is the one who turned me on to the idea of having um, asymmetrical number of notes per bow. Two groups of ones and twos and three notes per bow, that will really loosen up how many, how, you yeah. know, where you can put your accents, uh, accents and ghost notes. My, um, my uh, term for this is randomized swing bowing. Because, you know, swing bowing we think of as like um, hooked bowing, you know. <laughs> 
right? But the short note to the to the next long note. But if you just randomly mix in some some uh, either three in ones or separate notes, you get. I'm just going to play a D major scale or D seven scale to make it slightly jazzy. <laughs> just mix it yeah. up kind of randomly um it's for some reason it mimics more accurately the type of tonguing that sax players do mm-hmm. and horn players do in general um and it just makes it sound more idiomatic to to jazz yeah agreed yeah. completely agreed it's that behind the beat thing that singers do mm-hmm. uh that's very natural to do vocally right and somehow we don't Pick up on that, we fiddle players. We seem to want to play right on the beat because we're about the conductor's baton coming down on us. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which which segues wonderfully into our topic today, which is about the the classical this the classical yardstick or the classical lens that we view a lot of string playing through. It's a it's a very old fashioned world, but um, not only that, there's there's a sort of uh, a lack of recognition that there's other music in the world, and by recognizing other music, we're of course recognizing other cultures um, and their right to exist, uh, and their right to exist in our pedagogy and the way we teach, you know, uh, so that we're not just teaching sort of one cultural identity you know um and uh, this is i think a real issue especially when we start uh looking at popular yeah music and you know popular music culture and what that's all about and why is that so completely f- different world from classical music culture yeah i think that begs a huge you know socio-political question yeah. and um yeah, I, I mean, I have to share one story about <laughs> this. I can encapsulate my feelings about this in one quick story. One year at uh, during the summer Berkeley program, the five-week program, I was uh, preparing my classroom, and two kids came in early. They were both cellists. One was from Brazil, and one was from Taiwan. And they didn't speak English very well, but they quickly got their instruments out and realized it was just like da 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 that you yeah. know that sci-fi movie. <laughs> they could speak with music, you know. It was right. just like that. So they pulled out their cellos and immediately started playing some a popper etude. I think it was. They they couldn't say, "Hey, do you know this tune?" But but when it started playing, "Oh yeah, okay," and they would play. They kind of hacked their way through. It was a very beautiful moment, you know. I really thought, isn't this amazing? These guys from completely separate hemispheres, you know, separate continents, they can come together with music. Like, that's all I could think of was that movie, you know, coming together with music. And then I thought, okay, they're from different cultures. Uh, Could you teach us a folk song or a song that your mom sang to you when you were a kid or something? Teach us a Taiwanese song. Teach us a really good song. Nothing. Just empty. Nothing. They had nothing to share. And... That just, I went from, you know, oh my God, this is so great, we're communicating with music, to holy mackerel, what is happening here? These wow. cellists, uh, suddenly all they can play is something from a third continent <laughs> that, right. you know, has Not nothing there. to do with either. And they couldn't even play me a little, you know, I mean, that just <laughs> overwhelmed me entirely. And uh, Well, that is a, such a wonderful uh, little story 
um, because it, it just absolutely highlights the whole reason I'm doing this podcast, <laughs> which is yeah. to try to understand a, a why string culture is so divorced. What is this impasse? What is this this wall uh, in string playing? Or And it comes from string teaching. Why have these young players uh, led a musical life that has just had a wall around them? Yeah. You know, and where they are not even seeing their own culture. Yeah, and it's a it's a a wall with very uh, you know that's very tall and it uh, yeah can't see their own culture reflected. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, they're isolated even from their own culture. It's like they're not even allowed to speak their own language. That is devastating crazy. and crazy, and I think does not speak well to the culture that has imposed itself upon upon this. I want to take it one step further. Um, in the podcast you did with Mike, you guys were talking a lot about the difference between art music, well, uh, between art music, you know, Western classical art music and other kinds of music, which, by the way, right. is most of the music in the world. Yes, exactly. <laughs> played by most of the people in the world. Um, I want to make a further distinction between those, uh, between art music and uh, dance music. Um, art music, I think of art music uh, you know, Western class music fits into that idea. It's music that you sit and listen to. Uh, every culture has art music of some kind. But there's also, the, as you were saying earlier, the popular music, which I think of, you know, as dance music. And the, the difference for me is in the art music, it's the melody that takes the lead. I think you guys touched on this a little bit. It's the melody that takes the lead. And in the other music, it's the physicality, the, the uh, rhythm that takes the lead. And I think that there's a pretty long history of... Um, Western classical music feeling like any demonstrable expression of a steady, you know, danceable rhythm is like not cool and too sexy and too animalistic and too vulgar. Vulgar, and you just never yeah. would do that in public, you know? Exactly. And I exactly. feel like we're, you know, as string players, that gets beat out of us pretty early on beaten out of us pretty early on and you know you go from being yes. a kid in a music class where you're hi hitting on those orf instruments and you know you got a little time going on to suddenly no 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 you don't display that that's childish and vulgar and you know animals do that you know not human yes. beings who have rational thought yes uh, and that is such a huge loss and i i think that that attitude towards rhythmic music has taken a big toll. Yes, and I don't think it was there in the first place. Um, I think this is something that uh, was a cultural, uh, a tradition, a sort of norm that, that happened in where it just sort of stayed there in the sort of Russian school of the more or less the early 20th century. Like you were saying, it, was, it became a cultural thing where it was a little too coarse, a little too vulgar, a little too earthy to represent this sort of aristocratic cultural tradition that had, had developed around st string playing classical music and you know it's sort of this ele elevate elevated wonderful art music um but that art music started in the baroque era with very primitive more primitive dance kind of qualities like i think with bach i i really think i mean he wrote all these dance movements and i think we tend to play them where we don't we try not to overemphasize the one. It's too obvious. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think there are a lot of other musical cultures uh, that are 
successfully able to put those things together. Like, let's talk about Indian classical music, which is for sitting and listening to. I mean, the Indians invented, you know, math, for example, and have incredibly sophisticated uh, rhythmic concepts that are deeply embedded in their musical uh, compositions. And you're expected to improvise using those deeply complicated rhythmic ideas, and you're expected to be able to uh, count them, you know, participate in them uh, freely if you've done your homework. Um, I'm thinking there are probably a lot more Indian violinists out there than, you know, maybe classical, uh, Western classical violinists, and somehow that got through. I think there's, I think there's a little bit more to it. Um, First, I just want to say there are plenty of other musical traditions that include string instruments, Arabic music, Indian music, that also include rhythm uh, in a way that in Western classical music we don't include. It's really deeply part of the composition, like dance, danceable, metronomic, steady, you know, emphasized right. rhythm is part of the composition right. and what you're expected to be able to improvise using. Um, somehow Western classical music that disappeared. And again, you said it's about the beauty. And again, I would say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. To me, that uh, it seems uh, like all the flavor is gone. <laughs> when there's no downbeat, the flavor, I, there's no flavor for me in that. It's just really wall, becomes wallpaper, which is another problem. Mm -hmm. So you're pointing to the 17th and 18th century, 18th and 19th century as sort of the beginning of this Western classical tradition. I think in this, I think it's maybe older than that. And I want to make some kind of connection here between West African, you know, music, which is mostly rhythmic based and the, uh, you know, connection with Western classical music that happened during slavery in this country. I think there's a big, uh, I think, you know, the, institutionalized racism that went along with that slavery fueled the fire that made rhythm seem like something that you wouldn't do if you didn't have to, if you weren't an animal. I'm not supporting any of this. I'm just saying this is what I think happened. Yeah. And I think that's something that fueled the fire towards this idea of beauty that doesn't include rhythm. Very much so. Very and much I think so. there's an, yeah, there's one other interesting aspect to this, uh, you know, in this, in our, in the United States, the fusion of those two ideas became the blues. Um, in the, in the Caribbean, the fusion of those ideas became uh, charanga and salsa. Um, and those, if we look at those two mu musics for a moment, we can easily see <clears throat> that the music from the Caribbean is really all about the rhythm. You know, those rhythm sections have a very specialized uh, groups of people who have to participate in order for it to be good. There's got to be a kunga player. There's got to be a timbales player. There's got to be somebody playing the clave. There's got to be a shaker. There's got to mm -hmm. be, you know, all of these West African ideas have to be part of it. To play the blues, all you need is a guitar. Interesting. All you can, you know, and a voice. Interesting. And uh, in, the, in the United States, the slaves were, you know, forced to forego everything from their homeland. Language, religion, uh, music, everything had to be jettisoned. And they were suddenly forced to sing Methodist hymns with, you know, pitches that weren't part of their pentatonic system. I think that's how we got the blues. 
But in the Caribbean, it was different. You know, on whatever free time they had, they were allowed to practice their religion. They were allowed to play their music. They were allowed to dance and do things that they did from the old country. And I think that's how the music, you know, African, music of the African diaspora grew differently in these two countries. At any rate, it's all about the rhythm. And I think that that's, uh, as you, thank you for creating this podcast that's talking about that. Um, but I think that's part of how the uh, diametrically opposed idea of rhythm being, you know, something we want to hide yes. came about. Because in the Western tradition, it's associated with music of West Africa and West African slaves. Right. But he- okay, you can cut all of that if you want. No, I don't know if it's no, too of course not. Scary this, for- this is very central. And, and even though, you know, I'm going to acknowledge that we are two white people talking about this, this is what needs to be talked about by everybody and um and but but here's the thing why did this is the kind of the thing that i've been grappling with is why did strings get left out of of the progress of popular music in the 20th century in the u.s when things like horns drums pianos uh, all the jazz and rock guitar and, and you know everybody marched along going okay we're not afraid of rhythm you know because they were part of this black cultural music it came out of the blues but strings never jumped on that wagon okay i have some i I don't know but here's my here are my thoughts about that yes um first of all uh if you're a string player you could get a job and you're white and you're a man in 1910 or whatever you could get a job in an orchestra a pretty good job that would pay the rent and, you know, have some kinds of security. You could probably do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you throw that away in order to play, you know, some other kind of music? You're trying to make a living as a musician. This is an, right, uh, this is an option. Not as much, pl- making oh, less, hell less, you know, hell a of lower less. pay grade yeah. playing in a jazz club right. when you could be making more playing. Exactly, in an orchestra, and you know. Uh, that's one thought I have. And we know many great jazz violinists who would have preferred to be in an orchestra. Eddie South is one of those, uh, but uh, wasn't because he wasn't white. That was not an option for him. I think also Stuff Smith probably start, started out, I think I read that he started out as a classical player, but there was no future for him as a classical player because he wasn't white. So right. what choice did he have? Right. So that's more one yeah. thought. Second thought is um, couldn't hear him. I mean, you know, you've played in bands without a mic next to horn players and drummers. Can't hear it. (laughs) Right. You know, before (coughs) I started out playing, uh, when I was in college, playing klezmer music, and and all of the music uh, recordings uh, around that same period that we're talking about, turn of the 20th century, it's all about the clarinet. It is The melody is all about the clarinet. And if I stand next to a clarinet player, who do you hear? (laughs) You know, in a loud band with drums. (laughs) Yep. So I think... Those are... That's a very, very good point. Um, Two really good points. Systemic racism in the classical music world that essentially excluded black uh, players. And then the volume thing, you know. But um, the volume thing has changed. We have amps now. We now we can compete. There's no reason why we uh, cannot be heard over a clarinet, (laughs) you know. Um, But the racism part hasn't really changed all that much has yeah, it true that uh, hopefully it's about to uh you know but you know i yeah i agree and i, I think everybody should have access and of course I, i'm in favor of that on the other hand uh i 
I'm kind of interested to see what musics are going to evolve beyond. So we're saying, you know, we hope that people will have access to Western classical music training. And I'm thinking, sure, if you want that, have access. That should be accessible. But 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 if you don't want that, but you still want to play music on the right. violin, do something right. else. Like, I hope you have access exactly. to that. I, I'm not, I still feel very strongly that that's not the standard. Thank you. That is exactly where my head is at. Where, you know, what I would love to see is to see people who have never really, who don't even have um, a, a really good idea what classical string playing sounds like from wherever they are, whatever color or part of the world they're from, to pick up violins and to find their music on it. Whatever that cultural music is. If they're here, it's hip-hop. If they're in China, it's something else or whatever, you know, in India. Um, but to find their popular musical culture, their, their music that's relevant to the people around them in their world, in the, the, the people who are alive now, not people who were alive 200 years ago, um, to play in their own musical culture. Uh, and or I, even it, better, to create a new one. Yes. Create the create their own. Exactly. Exactly. And this is what I, this is my struggle to help people to try to find a place for strings in our popular musical culture because that's all I know really. You know, in terms of like what I'm really really acquainted with, um, to find a way. How do we how do we reintroduce strings to the popular musical culture like they were several hundred years ago? Um, how do we get strings into the studio where they're like they're driving the bus? They're not just putting pretty stuff in the background, but they're laying down the groove. Amen, brother. Amen. Right? Yes, definitely. This is how we get strings into our culture. We have to have people who know how to groove um, and get get them into studios with hip hop producers, with current producers, pop producers, people who are recording that stuff and go like, whoa, that's a new sound. This sounds different from everybody else. I'm going to use this. This is going to help give this record an identity or this artist or me as a producer. Um, this is this is my pipe dream that I'm, I'm hoping will happen. This is the future of strings that I am yes, trying to Yes, yes, the <laughs> future of strings, Tracy. Yes, do it. <laughs> Run with it, yay. And that brings us to our final segment of the show, a, sh a segment I call Not My Gig. So. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh-oh. I know you're cringing. So this is this is kind of mo modeled after the NPR um, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me show where they have a, a segment called Not My Job, and we ask our guests questions they know nothing about. So <laughs> there's so many where where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it was hard. I, it was hard for uh, me. I go like, geez, what what am I going to be able to stump Mimi on? But yeah, Mimi Rapson, because you are such a groove master and a great arranger for strings, Mimi, we're going to find out how much you know about Mimi from Labo M. <sighs> yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> She died of consumption. Uh, oh, no. She was that was one of my was questions. Was that one of the questions? Damn it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's, okay. Well, yeah. obviously, you know a lot. So this was, I was going That's like, geez, what am I going to stump her on? She knows everything. Okay. Well, let's see. We, you're allowed to get them all right. To, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Here you go. The first question. In the opera, 
Lab OM, what is Mimi's job? Is she A, a server at a cafe, B, a poet, C, a seamstress? I really don't know, but I'm going to go with seamstress. You are right. <sighs> You're because, 100% you know, she's right a, on that. She's a girl. She couldn't be a server or a poet. She has to do something for somebody else. <laughs> but I was hoping she's there, a bohemian. Yeah. Maybe you'd go, you'd fall for the poet thing. Eh, oh, that's a, that's a boy-girl moment there. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. she were a poet, nobody would have ever found out about it. <clears throat> Sorry, pushed one of my <laughs> buttons, Tracy. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, two. This one I think I'm going to We'll see. The premiere took place in Turin in 1896. Which famous conductor conducted the premiere? <laughs> Was it A, Arturo Toscanini, B, Gustav Mahler, or C, Hans von Bülow? Hans von Bülow? No. I, ha I have no clue. I'm going to go with Toscanini. No clue at all. You are right. No, really? 100%. You wow. win. Oh, the... that's awesome. I thought <laughs> so you were going to ask me what Broadway show is based on, on La Boheme. Do you oh, know that one? I don't. It's Rent. Rent was is a completely is redoing really? of La Boheme. Yeah. I wow, was pretty you got an extra credit. Extra credit. That's my <laughs> middle name. I was pretty sure you were going to ask me about small, fluffy dogs, actually, because everyone seems to name their small, fluffy dog Mimi, and I'm really <laughs> glad that you didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for being a good sport on that i appreciate it and thank you so much for being on this show and discussing these important topics that we need to talk about amongst us string players i'm really anxious to see what reaction we get from the greater groove facebook group and i'm hoping people will chime in and let me know and let you know their thoughts about all this stuff some of these are kind of hot button topics that we were discussing today but all stuff i think we need to talk about whether they're easy to talk about or not the string playing world i think has some reckoning to do um so we're trying to head right into the waves and uh and end up out on the other side where we can start surfing them. <laughs> well, thank you so much for so. putting this together, Tracy. I think you're right. The conversation has to happen. And I'm, I, I'm so delighted that you have taken that on and you're doing it in such a fantastic way. And I'm honored oh, to be thanks. part of well, the conversation. So thank you for the place at the table. <laughs> yeah, because of you and your wisdom and uh, my other guests, we can do this. So thanks for being a part of it. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Mimi. Thank you. Great to see you. Great. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. <laughs> <laughs>